here for Beyond the Crown. I'm at the Queensland, New South Wales border at Wollongarra. In fact, where I'm sitting, I can actually see the border from here. I'm at the Wollongarra Railway Cafe and I'm here with Jan Fryer, or as everyone knew her, Janice Marshall, Miss Delicious of 1966 from the Apple Harvest Festival. How are you today, Jan? I'm fine, thank you. It's been lovely meeting up with you again too. It is. So we knew each other in, I'll say, a sort of a previous role when I was with the ABC on Snow Patrol, Snow Watch, running around Wollongarra trying to find the snow back in 2015. We interviewed you here at the cafe. Yes, and um, I proudly came up to tell you all about what happens in Wollongarra and we got chatting about lots of other things. <laughs> so one chat then, I didn't know we would be sitting down talking to you about your past life as a queen with the, we'll call it the Apple and Grape Harvest Festival, but we'll do some fact-checking as we're going through because 66 is a very interesting year. Now, you were crowned Miss Delicious. I want to zoom in on that a bit because this is the new festival and it was technically the Apple Harvest Festival and everything that was printed. Tell us about what you thought about being named Miss Delicious. Well, the powers that be decided to make it Miss Delicious after the Delicious Apple, the brand. And we had a chaperone that was a descendant from Granny Smith, so she was Mrs Granny Smith. And it was more to do with the apples rather than the grapes that year. Um, six months after the apple blossom, so it continued on, and I don't think the grape part of it came in until about four years later. And, like, we've got your sashes because you donated them um, to the committee as part of their memorabilia collection. Um you were saying there was another sash. Tell us a little bit about the changes that you asked for. Well, I decided that um, I'd let them know that the Miss Delicious title didn't really truly represent, as a lot of people didn't even know, a delicious variety of apples when we went on our promoting tour. And um, I suggested to them that it, it, there could be a name change, but what they came up with I didn't know the following Miss Delicious 1968 and both of us got together to say we suggested that it wasn't in keeping with uh, what they were promoting so they yeah. changed it they, yep. they changed the whole process to apple and grape at that stage to introduce the grape owners and the grape so we had the orchardists and the vin vineyard people together and then ultimately it went back to sort of queens, charity queens and um, the winner. Yes. And a runner-up that was the princess. So it was almost sort of like it came full circle again um, by the 1970. Yes. And, um, the apple, last apple blossom queen was in the October. So we were the following six months uh, was the Miss Delicious competition. So we didn't really have time to... Um, raise money and the whole emphasis wasn't on the raising of money it was to do more so with the um, promotion of the apple industry. Now we've also got some more memorabilia you donated a pair of gloves which are gorgeous they go up to mm. your elbow. <laughs> now I also got given a skirt I was not expecting to be given this wonderful golden skirt is this yours? Yes that was 
the lower part of the dress that I wore that night. Um, it was a, a complete um, outfit and um, a couple of years later I was in an accident and I was wearing that dress and uh, the back zipper broke and <laughs> therefore um, we had to remodel it. So I just had the skirt. There's no way in the world that I could fit into that now. <laughs> But um, we remodelled it and had a, uh, a top to go with it. Now, who made this dress? Was it handmade? Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a lady here in Wollongarra called Mrs Guion who was an Italian dressmaker by trade and she made a lot of outfits for all of the girls from Wollongarra and um, very designer benefited. So you had a Wollongarra-made dress, ball gown, yes. for the Wollongarra, I'm going to just say queen, I'm going to retrospectively apply that to you as Miss Delicious. I love how hyper-local this is because it's not like you can just go and do that now if in, mm. you know, right here in Wollongarra. You are also a very interesting queen. So when I've been going through looking at all the, what we do know about all the festivals over time, a lot of the queens are coming from agricultural backgrounds. You're the army girl, so to speak, and you were sponsored by the Soldiers Club. And was that the Soldiers Club that was here in Wollongarra at the time? Yes. Um, I worked at the um, army camp, which is 5COD. I can't remember what those letters stand for <laughs> anymore. Um, but there were 60 soldiers here and 60 civilians, and um, I was a member of the John French VC Soldiers Club. And uh, I talked them into it. I was the secretary of the club and I talked them into it. I had to have a sponsor. This is and the reverse. There's so many queens who are saying, I have no idea why I got approached. But meanwhile, you did the reverse, said, yes. I think you should. Yeah. Yes. And and uh, I wanted to represent Wollongarra because so many times um, Wollongarra in the middle of Tenderfield and Stanthorpe didn't get represented in uh, lots of areas. And I was... Um, very much a local girl and still am um, in in bringing things to, to light about the history of the place. And so um, I approached them and said, would you mind sponsoring me? I think they had to buy the sash. That was about all they had to do. <laughs> but funnily enough, at, when I did win, um, I was then had to go on the winner's um, float, which was a trailer with a... Um, stylized apple on the back of it and the boys had cleaned up and spruced the uh, jeep up for me to travel in and they were most disappointed that I wasn't going to be traveling on this jeep in the float. Because <laughs> you were on the winner's one instead. Yeah, I was on the winner's <laughs> one instead. So, yeah. Were they thrilled that you won? Mm. And they were so proud of me. They were just, they were just, yeah, all of all the people in Wollongarra, my family and friends, and, and were so proud of me that we um, put Wollongarra on the map. <laughs> Fantastic. Jan, your family and its you know, extended members have been members of the military uh, in all sorts of different roles. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the family members and what they did? Well, I met my husband here at, at Wollongarra. He's a Malayan veteran. And um, since then, my children, Brad and Vic, have gone on to um, be soldiers. And between us all, counting my civilian history, we've nearly got 100 years between four of us of service. Fantastic. And my son's still serving. And you also have um, 
you know, family members who were very active members of the community here in Wollongarra. Like when we met in 2015, I met you at a place called Joe's Cafe. It was a little bit vintage. It was a bit of coffee. Mm. That actually was your old family shop. What things did you sell there at the shop? Well, uh, originally uh, my father had the butcher shop. My mum and dad had the butcher shop. And um, then we had a mixed business that we started there in 1963 and had um, the SO service station. We sold petrol. And I worked there for a good 25 years with my mum and she was crippled and so I was helping her out most of the time. I do want to ask you about a book. We've been talking about writing books before we hit record. You've been researching um, a history book about the Wollongarra Army Base. What are some of the stories that you've heard associated with that base? Well, I'm a mad family tree researcher. I've got an associate diploma at Local and Applied History from the UNE and some of the modules I had to complete were writing history. So I chose my local area to do that. When you research, when you Google things, you come up with very interesting facts. And one of them was um, a connection to the sinking of the Sydney. And that's HMS Sydney, isn't it? HMS Sydney, where someone who gave an interview uh, as a statement towards that was the local cinematographer follow and based at the Army base where the German... sailors were interned and I couldn't find out anything about that. So just to clarify that, because that's huge, we're talking German POWs were Mm. here at Wollongarra and they were the ones that bombed HMS Sydney. Yes. Wow. And we didn't realise, people that are my age never realised that they were here and even now I'm finding it very difficult to find any information about them. We all spoke about the Javanese prisoners of war And And what was the context of how they became prisoners of war? um, They were merchant seamen that couldn't um, continue in their job. They weren't really prisoners. Yeah, it's a funny kind of classification, Mm. isn't it? Yeah, but merchant seamen can be, I'm not sure what the verb is, but they can be forced to become part of the military Mm. um, of where their ships are registered, I believe. Well, they could, they, they were put here away for it because they they had to um they, they couldn't use their ships they couldn't go ahead with what they were their their yeah. job yep they were treated quite well even the german prisoners of war apparently were treated quite well but yeah what sort of things um did these POWs do while they were here at the army base the Javanese were employed to stack the ammunition on the trains and uh, they um, were basically allowed to come to the cinema in the town, but the Germans apparently weren't allowed in the town at all. There's a strange thing there because the local, and this applies to another one of our queens, I think, um, I can't remember the first name, but a girl of Hickling, her oh, da- yes, there was a Hickling who was an entrant. In, yeah. yeah. Her dad was a prisoner of war in Germany in World War One for some time, along at the same time as my grandfather was. And then when the German prisoners were here in World War Two, they were allowed out to go to the Hickling farm. So I think they must have gone down there to pick fruit. 
but because... And of, possibly he spoke German as a result he, of being he, a POW He did, himself. and he was very mindful. They yeah, looked okay. after him in World War One, so he was quite mindful of the fact that he could look after them in World War Two. Well, that's my assumption of what actually happened. A family member will probably be able to tell you more yeah. about that. That must be quite extraordinary, hey? Mm. You've just been... Well, not just. You've been a prisoner of war in the First World War and then you're at war again in mm. World War Two. And then there's someone, you know, politely inquiring, would you take some of the people who had made you a prisoner yourself mm. as help on your orchard? Yes. I yes. can't imagine what was going through that man's uh, mind at the time. I, can, I, I don't think I can imagine completely, but I often feel that the people, and this is getting back to military, the people who make the decisions, the rank and file of, of members just obey orders, you know, so there's, they're not personally connected they're just following orders yeah so that was interesting from that point of view and what other sort of things um have you found fascinating about the history of the army base um not not so much about the army base but um fascinated about the settlement of um the twin towns jennings is named after the um, prime minister i think of new south wales um, Patrick Jennings, who was the first Catholic um, Premier. Oh, and, yeah, the Premier, yeah. um, The house blocks, I've gone through all of the house blocks and found out who purchased them. And it is absolutely amazing who purchased them because they're all the heads of the bank in New South Wales, the heads of the um, political arena, the colonial secretary. Um, they really thought that this was going to be the capital of Australia. Like they, this was going to, well, this was slated as a major hub, wasn't it? Because we've got two railway gauges, one either side of us mm. here at the railway mm. cafe now, but this is the railway station. And it was a major transport hub to get goods and services going in so many different directions. Um, do you think that's what they were playing off, that this was going to be a major hub in the future? Well, there's evidence to suggest that they were going to have this as the capital of Australia. The wow. Walker, the Walker family from Tenterfield Station, had a lot of influence, and um, William Walker was at Tenterfield Station. His cousin actually wrote the constitution, I believe, for Australia, and Queensland was named Queensland, and Victoria was named Victoria after Queen Victoria. And that man did a lot to um, forward the situation of federation. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating, our connection with the federation, with the World War I um, soldiers coming through here with their horses, um, the World War II ammunition set up and the meat works set up with them, um, you know, being able to transship cattle here and beef out. Yes. So, yeah. It's a. It, it's all just died, but the history's still there. Yeah. And speaking of things, we're here at a railway station that's now a cafe. Hmm. What have you seen with the stopping of trains um, from Wollongarra as a Wollongarra girl? I. I just. I think it's sad, but there's a lot of people that want the Sunnyside Bridge opened up and everything, but. We've moved on. It, we we can't go back to that era. We have to admire what these people who did, who settled here, and how they how they managed in the circumstances. But we've moved on to a different era, and we have to accept it. 
that it would be absolutely stupid to try and get a railway that's going to um, transship goods and people. But no one would use it and it cost us a fortune. So we're the traffic, the road traffic's here to stay. <laughs> hey, I want to go back to 1966 for a moment. I've been asking all the queens, what did you win? So what did you win as queen? Um, I won a trip to um, Hayman Island for a week, but before that week I had to do a promotion tour from Brisbane through to Mackay, Townsville, Rockhampton, Cairns. Um, going and visiting the mayors and the, the shopping centres and doing speeches to promote the apple industry. And so then in the two years afterwards, I used to visit the Rotary meetings and um, went up to the exhibition to um, man the stall, the fruit and veggie stall that was there, various different things that I was involved in. What sort of questions did you get asked on your promo tour? I mean, this is the girl from Wollongara all of a sudden in Cairns. What sort of things did they want to know when they met you? We had to have a big learning curve because <laughs> being being um, the daughter of a butcher, not growing up on a um, an orchard, I actually grew up on a, a property with sheep and um, cattle, I then had to make sure I knew what I was talking about. So I'd sit down and try and learn all the varieties of the apples and, yes, um, the, the boys were there that accompanied us to give me a bit of an idea about what we needed to say. So that was helpful. Yep. What did the judges ask you? Can you recall your interview? I can't recall the interview as such, but I know that the, one of the judges was a delightful man. I think his name was Harry Moon, and he had the most beautiful eyes. It, it just, it just had the very understanding sort of eyes, and I think um, he might have given me the casting vote because we we had a little chat with him. I, I can't remember the conversation, but he, I, the question he asked me, I think he was pleased with the answer that. I didn't, I improvised well. <laughs> but I do remember the afternoon tea that we went to afterwards. Yes, you got, the judging was first, then there was the socialising yes. and then the ball. Yeah, uh, that was, was the following, day. yeah, I think it might have been the same day. I'm not sure whether yeah, it was the same very, day or um, not. Yeah, different festivals, yeah. yeah. So what was the afternoon tea like? Well, it was funny because um, back in 1966, as we said, we were still gloves and hats and stockings and all that sort of rigmarole that we've gone away with. And the afternoon tea was sponge cake with jelly on the top and cucumber sandwiches and, and all the effects of a proper afternoon tea with a silver tea service. That's very fancy. Yeah. And right in front of me there was this sponge cake with the jelly on the top and I went, oh, my God, I'm not going to ask for a piece of that. But someone else, and I won't say who. Nah, you can you can just say Annette Barker, now O'Reilly's name. <laughs> Sitting opposite me said, would you like to cut me a piece of that cake? And I looked at her and I thought, no. So I cut the piece of cake and I flopped the piece over onto the table and the, onto the, the plate and the jelly went plop onto the plate and... I thought, oh, thank goodness, that was it. And I passed her, her plate back over it because we did such a good job of it. Everybody said, um, you did such a good job of that. Would you <laughs> like to cut me a piece? So I ended up cutting the cake. 
<laughs> and I think the judges might not have stopped their judging at that time. <laughs> they hadn't made their decision. So that was one thing that went in my favour. Well, you did the dismount well on the cake at the fancy afternoon tea. <laughs> That's, right. That's got to count for something. Um, what are your highlights or vivid memories about being the Queen? Because it's more than just that day, isn't it? It's And it's more than just the promo tour. You often go and do things, like you said, for Rotary. There's other promotional activities leading up to the next festival. Mm. What are your memories of that? Um, probably various things that have happened in my life shade my memory about that to a certain degree. Um, I, I do know that I thoroughly enjoyed being at the exhibition to represent that and that was a whole week of um, talking to the avocado farmers and the um, ginger factory farmers and I learned an awful lot. Um, I, the respect that the owners and orchardists have shown me in the years since has been something that I treasure um, because I think that um, we did a good job of promoting them and, and obviously the first festival went on with um, some ideas. One of the things was to change the Miss oh, Delicious the title Miss Delicious. to Apple and Grape Harvest Festival and then, of course, they brought in the idea of um, raising money so um, there was nothing much more I could give them to as far as that was concerned. Now the floats were so huge and you know it was such a thing the street parade. You you know you touched on that the boys were really hoping you were going to be in their souped up jeep that they had ready from the army base but what other sort of floats were do you remember from the 66 street parade? Well the the chap by the name of Lenny Rigg who was the local follow a lot of people wouldn't remember him he had his car and trailer and I sat on this stylized apple um, that we, I don't know what it was made of, but I had to get up there and sit up there for I think about two or three hours just sitting there as, because we had to get up, couldn't get off once I got <laughs> on. And um, I had my outfit and we had the black gloves and do the queen wave oh, <laughs> as we went. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the floats was Shanine McAlpine in a dolly she, I think she was standing on top of a mini minor or whatever and had this beautiful Dolly Varden, is that the oh, name yes, of the doll? Oh, yes, the Dolly Varden yeah, the Dolly doll. Varden, right? And then there was the Dolly Varden cakes, weren't yeah, there? Yeah, well, the it was just like it. a Dolly Varden cake. That oh, my she was in. That's my memory of that one. <laughs> and, of course, over the years they've improved. The Gold Coast used to bring up the Toowoomba Carnival flowers, used to bring up their huge floats, absolutely amazing. Um, but everybody went out. Um, it was, it was because I don't remember apple blossom floats, but I think the apple and grape passwords. So the very first one was good, but it developed into something really splendid. 1970 with the Fijian band, and that was amazing what they had that year. It was yeah. beautiful. And we've had, um, we're very lucky to see Vic Panisi's family home videos that his mm -hmm. dad took, and um, got to see that band again in 1972 for the centenary. Was, so, was it 1972, yeah. And extraordinary photos too hmm. that, of that time as well, yes. And the Ballandine group always used to put in a Southern Bell and their floats, they were they were great. They they used to, because they were judged as well, they, they used to win. Don't think our floats were judged. It yep. was just a matter of, uh, of contributing some help towards yep. it. And I think too it's... Like, talking to you, Annette, and now yourself, 
There was only six months really between Annette being crowned and then you because mm. we're talking apple blossom time in 65, October, and then you're the beginning of March the following year in 66. Mm. So there was a big transition. There was a lot of change going on it was from 65, 66 and then 68 um, about what these festivals looked like too. And a lot of trees being pulled out during the 60s as well. Not many people mm. were growing apples. In fact, you were paid not to grow apples back in the day. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I didn't know. So it was a big tumultuous time, the 60s, and I think that's your non-sequitur of the podcast really. But, uh, mm. yeah, lots of things that were going on. In terms of, you know, I want to talk beyond the crown. So beyond 66, how long did you stay here in Wollongarra for? I've only just recently left about four years ago yeah. and I still own a home here. So, yeah, I'm still very much a Wollongarra girl. I'm still researching Wollongarra, um, even though I did the Jennings. Wollongarra has been a little bit more difficult to find out various things about. So eventually I'll get that done. But um, the Wollongarra Railway, I've been here... 60-something years, yeah, off and on. Wow. I've, repre- I've been president of um, the Netball Association, the uh, Wollongarra School of Arts, and office member of the school PNC, represented, done my bit. Yes. <laughs> um, now, when did the Army base close? The Army side of it went for about another 10 years, in the 1970s, I think. Yeah, okay. The Meatworks closed in 1981. And then since then, the um, Sheep Meatworks opened up. So there's been a bit of production around here, but um, the families have moved on and, and pretty well it's been an older generation. And there's there's definitely a change in the um, dynamics again now because there's different families coming back here to live because of the lifestyle. Yep. You were telling me before we hit record as well that you had a role like um, ordering, purchasing and bookkeeping, funnily enough, for a rural company. So we were talking about how you were this non-rural gal, but you eventually got into that you know, side of the industry with ag supplies. When did you get into those sort of roles? Uh, when my uh, father's business um, was going downhill, um, they, they needed to retire. That was the butchery and store, wasn't it? The butchery it? and... Yeah. and it, so um, I decided to go back to my office skills and I just had various roles. I went and worked um, in the Rural Lands Protection Board in Tenterfield for seven years. Um, then I went to an engineering supply place um, and I've had a couple of other different administrative roles as well. And that's a thing, I'm coming back to a question I asked you earlier and we're wondering, oh, what's the answer for that? But that's border life, isn't it? So you're talking about, oh, I worked down in Tenerfield, but you lived in Queensland, and then you would drive up the road to Stanthorpe. Wollongarra is definitely split between the two. One of the things that used to occur when we first got daylight saving in, we had not only the border issue that was there before, but then we had the daylight saving issue. And we used to do bookings for a company called Border Coaches that came through from Brisbane to Tenerfield and back again. 12 o'clock was when they came here. They actually crossed over the southbound one and the northbound crossed over here at 12 o'clock. When they went to daylight saving, one of them came an hour earlier than the other one. So it was very awkward. And when you 
had people who didn't quite understand that when you said it's 12 o'clock, they had it in mind it was 12 o'clock their time, not 12 o'clock New South Wales time or whichever was the other. <laughs> so you had to give out two times and write them down because if they didn't, they'd come back and they'd be standing there waiting for the bus that had gone an hour earlier. Yep, yep. Um, we lived in Queensland. My children went to work in New South Wales and uh, so we went to Tenterfield and were home before we went. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and nothing much has changed because the border issue at the moment has brought up all of these problems for the people that are still living here. Yeah, and it can feel like if you're only just watching headlines that it's something new with a t pandemic, but it's never um, been a new thing, hey? In my mind, because I'm living away from here at the moment, in my mind it's worse now because families are split. They can't come across to see their yeah. grandparents. Where I live, people are going, oh, it's all right, you just got to put your mask on, you just go here, you just do that, there's not a problem. They don't understand the ramifications of what is actually happening right here at the at the coalface, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that we're interviewing now because the board had just opened the, the morning, like 1am the day before. So, um, yeah, it's been a really hard time for communities right here on the border. And, and yeah. it's not stopped yet, you know, that yeah. we're, we're going to be suffering. It's a bit like when, in my mind, it's a bit like when the depression was on, the, the depression changed the world or changed Australia and I think this next 10 years we're going to see what's going to be happening. Yep. But I'm hoping that the people who live in this community can bounce back and, they, and they've coped with it so well. Yep. Yeah. But people who don't live in this community really do not understand. They do not understand. Yep. They don't understand that a, a girl from Wollongarra who has no... Apple industry background can can move into that situation in 1966. That um, people who live in Wollongarra and can't get to their normal doctor or go and do their normal shopping have to change their mind. Yep. People in New South Wales can't come across and get their paper or their milk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just crazy. Yep. I want to throw out to you an opportunity to give a pep talk to, like, the current young ambassadors. What's your big um, pro tips or advice or pep talk that you have for the entrance this year? I think it would be something that I would say to anyone. Be true to yourself. It's no good trying to be someone who is out to win a competition if you... Um, represent yourself, represent your family, represent your, your your community in a true fashion, then everything will turn out for the best. And for those that don't actually win, the experience themselves is, is worth having a go at doing something like that. What, they, what they'll learn is um, really something that they probably wouldn't achieve if they... Um, didn't represent their, their community in the first place. Yep. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, mm. like, I'm going to ask you now, like, what did you learn beyond, you know, Apple varieties that you were wrote learning before your big judges interview? But what, did, what skills did you learn 
as a result of being an entrant for that competition? Um, I've probably been always a little bit outspoken. I probably have the confidence to get up in front of a group of people, but not necessarily strangers to talk about something, um, about things that I was expected to discuss. I'm pretty good at talking about something I know and have the knowledge, but I learned about mixing as a very naive 19-year-old, I learned about mixing with with mayors and um, public figures. So that was interesting. I don't know what the girls win now. It may be a little bit more low-key as far as that's concerned. But um, Yeah, that's been one of the big changes, I think. But, mm. You know, gone are the days of the big Qantas sponsors, that kind of thing, even overseas holidays in the heyday. Mm. Um but still, it's the same skills, isn't it? And that personal development, regardless of all that. that it learn. is. And, and hopefully the people who um, ask them to be a, a, an ambassador appreciate that some of these people have never done anything like that. They, they have to learn as they go. Yep. And it's a very vulnerable time of their life. There's, there's, they're young young people in just venturing out in the community. There is an expectation that they will raise a lot of money. That puts a lot of pressure on their family. Um, but the benefits to them personally is what should be the paramount importance. Yes. Now, Jan, you're writing a book about the soldiers from the Tenerfield and local area. What was inspired by doing those books? Well, going to Anzac Day services every year and we'd have the children read out the names that are on the honour roll. And I think there's about nine or 12 for World War One, and several others for World War Two. And I was sitting there once and they said, we will remember them and lest we forget. And then I thought, We've, nobody knows who these people are. We're remembering them, but we've, they've not been in our memory. Who were they? What was their story? Not, they're not just a name on an honour roll. So I researched these people to find out why we have them on the Wollongarra roll. And it's really quite interesting. Some of them were local people. Some of them were here um, as immigrants from England working on um, the local sheep station. Some of them were here involved with the railway and was only here momentarily. Hmm. But and some of them are buried in um, France and some in England. It, it's just fascinating to know their personal story. So that got me going to do the World War II ones and I've got two little booklets out about them. And then last, and the Anzac 100 Years for Tenterfield, I was on their Anzac Centenary Committee and I researched the 1,200 soldiers that were in World War I from the Tenterfield Shire. Uh, culminating in a big day on Remembrance Day where they made all the crosses for the 200 and something soldiers that never made it back. It was a very poignant moment, very and much more um, involved in the locals learning about who they were. My daughter actually after 23 years of service, spoke at the local um, hall about her, her service and where she was posted and her experiences. 
and the school children were absolutely amazed at, at what she'd done and 10 years later they're still coming up to her remembering that day and the teachers were really so pleased that they had an opportunity to speak to someone that really represented Bollingara as well. It's funny too, isn't it? Like, lest we forget, we will remember them. And, you know, you were getting pretty, pretty fired up about are we really remembering them, just reciting a name off? Mm. And then yet, on the other hand, there are so many myths and tall tales about the things that went down at the Wollongarra Army Base or when it closed as well. One of the big myths I always hear is that there are tanks and jeeps all buried out at the Army Base. What are some of the tall tales or myths that you've heard over the years about the place? Well, one of them is not a tall tale because my husband worked out there as a civilian and a grader operator and he uncovered a, a cache of um, rifles. Uh-huh. So, okay. And um, I think some of them are actually um, mounted and put into various RSLs. Not real sure. So why would he? Why would a cache of rifles be buried at an army base? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know whether that's true or not. I know when the dam, the Beehive Dam, got emptied here um, inexplicably. <laughs> is that's a word? Um, not so long ago, we Which went up there to have a sorry? look. Hmm? Which dam was this? The Beehive Dam, our town supply. Ah, it right here em- in Wollongong. It was emptied. Sorry. Yeah, yep. it was emptied much to our surprise and shock. But at the bottom of that, there was a whole heap of um, car registration plates, modern car registration plates. So who knows why people would, you know, bury something and, and yeah. I've heard, um, again, this is just stories, allegedly, that the US uh, Army was not able to sell on, make a profit, any of their you know, supplies, so they'd often bury things. Have you heard that? No, but um, not in this area, but I do believe that might have happened out west. Um, I did read a story recently about Cloncurry or somewhere out there where there was a, a, a US Army base there, but no one seemed to know that that was there. Yeah, that's what I hear too, yeah. that no one really knew that they were there. And it's a lot of Ipswich locations too have... US Army stuff and supplies buried. Not something that I've delved into and I've tried to find out if there's any truth in some of the things that have happened here. Um, I did find out about an accident that happened at the bottom of the hill going to the Jennings New South Wales side Army base where four were killed, 12 were injured and there's nothing in any of the newspapers at the time and the only reference I could find was in a townsville newspaper. So military-wise, they didn't advertise these things. What happened in that accident? Um, the truck the truck came in to pick up the boys coming back from leave. Um, just going down this big hill for for whatever reason, the brakes failed. They hit a tree, and one person died. To Oh, it's a scene. Two people died afterwards and a fourth one died the next day. Yeah, right. Wow. One of them is buried in New South Wales and has a New South Wales death certificate because they brought the injured across the border to Queensland. 
the other, the next two were um, buried in Luckwich Cemetery in Brisbane and have a Queensland birth uh, death certificate. And the fourth one died in Warwick and is buried in Warwick and has a Queensland death certificate. Now, I found in 1917, everybody who passed away or were killed in action in the war, their death was in 1917, but their death certificate's 1922, ah, five years later. It's a bit of an administrative delay. No, no, it's not administrative because they didn't have proof of the death and then they've got a different death certificate. So the yeah, same okay. thing happened here in this accident that that they had, um, because they're military, they had a military death certificate and then they actually gave them a, a state death certificate after it. So they got two death certificates. That's a really good nutshell, isn't it, about how hard it is to get the history of certain things, especially when it's, you know, you say military, it's very well documented on the inside and so much paperwork and so forth, if you know what I mean. Mm. But yet, yeah, something something goes down on a border and you can be chasing even things like death certificates to get names across well, two different administrative powers. Yeah, That's right. And I know there was, a, you know, not military, but I know that a, a lady passed away when delivering the lunch to her husband in the railway and she died in New South Wales, but she's got a Queensland death certificate because she, she practically died on the border. Yeah, yeah. That that family history or just any sort of historian work, mm. that is very frustrating. But yes. also it's kind of the thrill of the chase, isn't it? Mm. To get I might answers. add that Patrick Hodson's done an absolute wonderful thing. He did a um, thesis on the Spanish flu and its effect here at Wollongarra Railway Station. So for anyone wanting to know a bit about Wollongarra in that era, it's actually really, really great. Jane, I want to say thank you so much for talking with us today. I am really looking forward to not if but when you release, you know, the history book about the Wollongarra Army Base and you've got already other... Uh, publications of local history out as well. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you, not wrapped in beanies and parkas like we were chasing the snow that one morning in 2015. Mm. And, in fact, I'll do it like a PS-type addendum question. The snow. Queenslanders are fascinated by places like Wollongarra because they get snow regularly, even yes. if it's a flurry one year. Um, but some years we're making snowmen and we get a decent dumping. We were here on a Monday that week in July when the snow came. It came on Friday. It was We chose the wrong day, didn't we? Tell us, you were here in 84 too. That was an impressive snow year. But I think we got more into here in 2015. What were your snow memories of Wollongarra? The snow memories? Well, the 84 one, my daughter was away, but my son was here and he made a snowman and a dog in our um, driveway, and I do say it was a snowman. <laughs> it was and, anatomically correct. <laughs> and, and, yes. Oh, bless. <laughs> that's my son. Anyhow, we got a lot of um, comments, people driving around, and a lot of fun with the way um, everybody interpreted snowmen and snow, you know, witches, and it was great. It was just a great time to, to be here. 
Um, and then the last lot where we did much the same. My my husband was um, an Englishman and uh, the first time I woke up and said, I think it snowed last night. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, you better get out of bed because it snowed. And he said, no, <laughs> stop pulling my leg. He said, it's not snowed. And anyhow, we got up and there was snow everywhere and I walked out in the snow and had footprints there and when I finally did get him up, he said, oh, you spoiled the look by getting out the footprints. And I said, well, you should have got up earlier. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. And this last time when it snowed about 2 o'clock, I wandered the streets in my dressing gown taking photographs at 2 o'clock in the morning because I was just so fascinated with the fact that it had snowed. I wanted to capture all of the lights and that, so I've got some good photos as far as that's concerned. It really was a winter wonderland, Mm. wasn't it, that Friday Mm. morning? Because it did snow, yeah, like that 2am sort of time in the middle of the night. So it was just waking up to this glistening white um, place. And it's interesting you said the lights because everything looked like it was glowing in the snow. Didn't it look pretty? It was was beautiful. Wollongara looked snow sexy that, that morning, I have to admit, yes. It's so good that I got to talk to the snow girl again from 2015. (laughs) I'm really glad we got to talk again um, and find out what we've been up to. Thank you so much for talking to Beyond Mm. the Crown. Mm. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. No worries. Thank you. On the next episode of Beyond the Crown, it's the other Royal Jubilee. 1972 was the centenary year for Stanthorpe and it was a huge apple and grape harvest festival year. Join me to meet Carol Scoose, our 1972 Queen, for her 50th Jubilee as Stanthorpe's Queen from the centenary. So we'll go from the border with Jan Fryer down to south of the border down Tenterfield Way to find out what Carol Scoose, now Carolyn Robinson, has been up to since the centenary year. Beyond the Crown has been made possible by the Regional Arts Development Fund, RADF, and it is a partnership between the Queensland Government and the Southern Downs Regional Council to support local arts and culture in regional Queensland.